Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains references to wartime violence and suicide. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. And I can't be bothered coming up with something clever to say about myself. And I'm Hannah, and I have to put up with Nicola on a regular basis. This is the worst day of my life. No, it's the best day. It's the first time we're recording in person. We are recording in person, and I'm very sweaty. And it's the first time we've recorded uh, since we launched episodes. Yes, it is! And um, everyone's been really, really lovely about it. Um, It's been really great. If you want to give us a, a like, comment, subscribe, hit that bell link in the doobly-doo. Hit us up on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Podbean or Spotify or where's another place you get podcasts? Pretty much everywhere. Pretty much everywhere. Except that weird niche one that your grandma uses. We're not on my, that. I, my grandma died. Like, ten years ago. It's okay. okay I right. got over it. Right, anyway. Cool. So. <sighs> well, you're rude. Anyway. Uh, you're listening to Women of War, a podcast where we discuss the women who prove that men don't have all the fun when it comes to war. Can we really describe war as fun? No. <laughs> But I'm going to do it anyway, because some of the women have wonderful adventures, uh, alongside all the destruction and all the trauma, that is. Yeah, okay. I'll let it slide. Um, yeah. Today we're going outside of our comfort zone. Are we going to Sydney? We're not, because their coffee is shit. Very true. We're going out of our comfort zone by going back into the 3rd century CE, Syria, or AD that is, if you're old school, to discuss Zenobia, queen of the Palmyrian Empire, who took on the Roman Empire, because she knew they needed to be taken down a peg or two. Yeah, this is prior to, like, 1914, so I'm definitely out of my comfort zone. I did two ancient history subjects in my undergrad, and <laughs> I was like, I should see what this is all about. What, like, in case I, I like it. it. Like, yeah. maybe I really love ancient history. Maybe it's great. And I spent the whole time being like, that's a vase. It tells us they had flowers that they wanted to put in a vase. Because I say vase, so this is... you're nasty. I'm nasty. No, way, I'm nasty. Anyway, I did the 1950s, so, you know, even if my sources are handwritten, I get offended that they didn't use a typewriter. So, my sincere apologies to anyone who knows more about me than the ancient world, but we're doing this, so put down your copy of Tacitus. I actually always thought it was Tacticus, and you don't know why. Okay, so there's a Terry, pra- there's a Terry Pratchett character in Discworld called General Callus Tacticus, but he's like a historical figure, so you never actually meet him in the Discworld. But he's a parody of like Julius Caesar, Gilgamesh, and a little bit of Sun Tzu, and General Patton, and his name is a reference to Tacitus, but I always call him Tacticus, so I probably will do that That's later. fair. Okay. Look, so, I could be wrong. As we said, this I, is out of our conversation. I don't think you are. Anyway, Zenobia. Yeah. Look, I'm not surprised you had a Terry Pratchett reference to throw in there either. So, Zenobia. Zenobia was the rebel queen who took on the power of the Roman Empire and nearly won before going the way of many heroic women and tragically losing all her power to men who didn't like an upstart woman getting in their way. When her husband was murdered, Zenobia took on the Persians, seizing control of the eastern part of the Roman Empire, sending in forces to conquer Syria, Egypt and Anatolia. Anatolia. She declared herself empress and built herself an empire worthy of rivaling Rome But soon the Roman Emperor took exception to a woman challenging his superiority and met her forces in battle, before she was captured and her city sacked. Which is kind of a repeating pattern with historical women going up against the Roman Empire, because you can compare her to Boudicca, who had, I think, ten times the amount of troops the Romans had, and then they all died against the Roman Legion. Um, She's also being compared to Cleopatra, but 
Zenobia remains relatively unknown in the West. As with most ancient history, our sources are quite limited and subsequently even more subject to the biases of their narrators. Yeah, all history is biased, which <gasps> is shocking, I know. Especially to undergrads and conservatives. Oh my Christ. Chris Ullman talked today. It was very upsetting for everybody. <laughs> Alright, yes, but with modern history, the wider variety of sources at least allows some level of cross-checking. Like, we're biased in the stories we decide to tell on this podcast, but people can go out and cross-check us with other sources to make sure when I've been really lazy and taken a shortcut. We only do that occasionally, I promise. It's true that with ancient sources, there are often only like one or two accounts of an individual's actions, and so we have no way of comparing that with another account to attempt to weed out the author's inherent biases. But as with all history, it's really a matter of what you do with the sources you find, rather than how many sources you have. And people can still be completely ruled by their own beliefs, even with an abundance of sources. You know the Holocaust? We have plenty of sources for that many of whom researchers could actually talk to, but we still have Holocaust deniers claiming it didn't happen. So, also, side note, just fuck Holocaust deniers. Like, like don't fuck Holocaust deniers. Like, like don't fuck Holocaust deniers. Like, we live with one near one of the, like, tightest, biggest, still-existing populations of Holocaust survivors in the world, and we've still got Holocaust deniers in Australia. I think, I think like, in Melbourne... It's Caulfield. It's the second highest... Like population of Holocaust survivors outside Israel. Yeah, I believe I think it's actually the biggest now. Oh. I heard it was the biggest for a while, but anyway, I was in Oakley the other day. I didn't ask anybody. That's fair. It's right next door. This is one of the things you guys can fact check if yes. you want to check us on our. I mean, I could check right now. I'm not going to. No, All right, to. for Zenobia, there are very few sources on her life, and the ones that exist are definitely not reliable. A lot of the information on her comes from the Historia Augusta or Augustan history. Wow, that's difficult Latin to translate. A collection of Roman biographies <laughs> written by six different authors many years after the events they depict took place. Considering the fact this is a Roman source and Zenobia made the Romans look bad, it's obviously unreliable. Other snapshots of her life appear as anecdotes in Jewish and Arab histories, but these are fleeting and offer only tantalising glimpses. And obviously these sources too have their own agendas and beliefs clouding the story. I do like that even in Roman times it takes six historians working on a book just to get one published. Bet they've made $3.50 off it in royalty since. Oh, I mean, that's that's a big profit. It's, that's one of the reasons I left academia seeing people's tweets like, I made $8 off my book, and I was like, time to go! You don't go into academia if you want to make money. I thought you made at least, like, $12 off a book. <laughs> like, you fucking wrote it. Sorry. Sorry, Mum. Alright. Alright. Hannah. Palmyra? Palmolive. Not Palmolive Soap. Palmyra. 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 All right, where and what are we going? Okay, so before we get to Zenobia, we probably need to do a bit of groundwork on where the hell Palmyra is and what the hell is happening in the 3rd century. Well, considering humans are humans and the Romans are Romans, I'm going to assume war. This is a podcast on war. You don't get brownie points for guessing there was a war happening. I need constant praise or I'll die. Like, the worst part is, since we stopped using Zoom all the time, I haven't been seeing my own beautiful face constantly in the corner of my computer, and I'm suffering. Calm down, Narcissus. Okay. So, Palmyra, Palmyra, Palmolive, was in the middle of modern-day Syria, inland from the Mediterranean Sea. The Roman Empire in the first half of the 3rd century, century was just bloody massive, and Palmyra sat at the eastern edge, so it was an oasis trading city that linked the might of the Romans with the Empire of Asia, pretty much literally east meets west. So traders would cross the desert in caravans, which is like a group of traders travelling together and not a motorhome like <laughs> Grey Nomads, and stop at Palmyra to resupply and rest. 
This gave the city immense wealth and power and the city's rulers were able to build magnificent buildings using the money that came in from trade. Um, and it was actually called the Pearl of the Desert. It's kind of giving me like Istanbul vibes. Istanbul, not Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, vanilla. Anyway, so it was probably since the 1st or 2nd century CE, or AD if you love that sexy Jesus dude, Palmyra was governed by Rome, though the city itself was much older than Rome. It's quite possible that people began living in the area that would become Palmyra around 7000 BCE, and there was a city there from at least 2000 BCE. The context, Rome, began as around the 8th century BCE, depending on what wolf you ask. Though in the middle of the desert, Palmyra prospered due to natural springs that enabled the founders to build a city so far from the coast. It was probably around the 1st century CE that the various tribes began to form a permanent settlement in the area, and modelled themselves on the organisational systems of ancient Greek cities and Rome. So, no powerful women. Woo! Yay! So, sometime in probably the middle of the first century, Rome annexed Palmyra and brought it into the empire. So, since I read the script, I've been excited for this line. Like when you're driving and see a house being moved on the back of a truck. Did you know the house I grew up in was moved to the location it was meant to be? On the back of a truck in five pieces. Oh so it was my actually God. five trucks. You didn't know. I didn't know this. Well, yeah, and it was very drafty. They didn't do it like that. The Empire decided to incorporate the Oasis City for its strategic location. So if Palmyra was under Roman control, then the Empire had a seat of power close to their eastern border. Also, if Palmyra was part of the Empire, then Rome could take all the wealth that was pouring into the city from traders. So by the late 2nd century, Roman troops were stationed in Palmyra, but Palmyra was also somewhat unique in the Empire, because the city was actually allowed to build its own army. That's very generous of the Romans, really. So sweet. It's really nice. Actually unusual for them, because they would suck in your own mm. citizens and be yeah. like, hey, when I go in the army, we'll give you some land! And, and that's salt. And that didn't end badly for anybody. Never. Ever. The Romans actually recruited the Palmyrene militia as an auxiliary force of the Roman army to patrol the eastern border, but they still were essentially the Palmyrene army by itself. In the early 3rd century, the current Roman emperor, Steve, declared Palmyra a colony, which raised its status within the empire. This meant that Palmyra no longer had to pay tribute to Rome so they could reduce their expenses. This was especially good because trade had declined and Palmyra in the 3rd century was in a very insecure position, though known as insecure as casuals working at universities in the 21st century. I would mic drop, but I don't want to break the mic. So we yeah, you'd probably owe someone money for I that. Would, and yeah, I don't, don't have, have money. money. At the same time, Rome was in a bit of trouble. Oh no! The Persian Empire invaded the Roman province of Mesopotamia around 230 CE, determined to take back the cities that Rome had captured from the ancient Persian Empire, which ended in a stalemate, unresolved sexual tension, and the situation ready for more war. Inside the Roman Empire was not much better. In the early 240s, everybody and their uncle was claiming they were emperor after the previous emperor had been assassinated in 235 CE, which resulted in civil war. I thought they were already in civil war, but whatever. This... I feel like Rome is always almost in a state of civil war. Anyway, this further <laughs> exacerbated the decline in trade for Palmyra as caravans didn't really want to travel into a hot spot of war. I wonder why. Weird. So, in all this chaos, a Palmyrene dude called Odonathus was appointed to the Roman Senate, which was a rare honour, but it really didn't give him much power. Sometime around 251 CE-ish, Odonathus became Raztard Moor, or Chief of the Palmyrenes, a position he shared with his son. Historians don't really know exactly what this position entailed. Uh, it may have been an honorary title with little power, or perhaps it came with civil or military responsibilities. But one source suggests that Odonathus was gifted a throne at one point, which indicates perhaps the powers of a king-like figure, or they were just like, you know what, you sit down sometimes. Ancient Roman Ikea just had a sail on thrones. Yes. What would be the, like... 
I don't know what you'd call it though. Anyway, the title of Raz Tadmor, regardless, was historic. There's no evidence that any Palmyrene figure was granted this position prior to Odinathus, um, and it makes sense that in this period of chaos, when the Roman Empire was occupied elsewhere with external and internal conflicts, that the Palmyrenes might have felt they needed to create a new position that had the military power to protect them. So it's possible he was in charge of the Palmyrene army and perhaps even increased its numbers. Around 257 or 258, Odinathus was from Odinathus. Odinathus, sorry. Sorry, ancient Rome. (laughs) I'm not sorry. This is the one culture I'm not going to apologise to for mispronouncing words. Around 257 or 258, Odinathus... Oh, fuck me. ...was promoted to the rank of consular, higher than his previous titles. This suggests that the Romans thought that both he and Palmyra were definitely 100% trustworthy and would never, ever launch a coup against Rome. As part of his new role, Odinathus was probably in charge of defending Palmyra and surrounding deserts, and perhaps even further afield, or a desert. He certainly had the power to command armies, which would become important when in 260 the Roman Emperor and his top buddies were defeated and imprisoned by the Persians. The Emperor's son took control of Rome, but the eastern edges where Palmyra sat were far from his seat of power and low down on his list of priorities. But the Persians were raiding the eastern provinces with cities destroyed and Palmyra sat uneasily in their path. After much political and military manoeuvring, which we don't have time for, Odonathus was eventually the most powerful ruler in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. I totally get why they have so many movies on ancient history like this. Like the sweeping dramas. It's a Brad, lot of fun. Because then Brad Pitt is in them and it just gets really awkward. I don't want Brad Pitt in them. I don't either. I'm just saying he ends up in them. Yeah. Or no. Eric Banner. He's in this new movie called The Drop. No, we're not doing that right now. We're not now. doing that. No. In the 260s, Odonathus decided he wanted to go on the offensive against the Persians. We just just don't don't know. know. Legit, historians, they're not really sure. There was probably an element of revenge for the Persians' destruction of Palmyrene trade, and it was also probably a preemptive attempt to stop further Persian attacks before they started. Odinathus and his army lay siege to the Persian city of Testophon. (laughs) Sorry. God, how old are you? I've been looking at... (laughs) I'm really sorry. It's just, spoiler alert, I've been looking at a lot of stuff about Phalloplasty recently. Oh, oh my really god, sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna say that line again in case we want a second version. Okay. Odinathus and his army lay siege to the Persian city of Tessaphon, and he brought back several cities under Roman control. This raised his standing, though it didn't fix Palmyrin's trade issues, and he now held the title King of Kings, which is just a little bit pretentious. But it's also like, Jesus! Anyway, so that is cool. Good for Agapanthus. Um, where is Zenobia? <laughs> so, <laughs> Zenobia was Agapanthus' wife. <laughs> oh, no. And though she's not really present in the historical record up to this point, she would have been a prominent in a prominent position alongside Odonathus. <laughs> she travelled with him on his campaigns and developed an equal reputation for bravery and endurance as Odonathus. So accompanying him also enabled Zenobia to become familiar with the army, building a relationship with the soldiers and earning their respect. So, I'm not foreshadowing, you are. Odinathus never tried to take advantage of his power in the east to usurp or secede from Rome, and he remained a subordinate to the Roman Empire. Around 267 or 268, Odinathus was assassinated. Assassinated. Poor Odie. None of the sources agree on who, why, how, or where he was killed. For our purposes, it doesn't really matter. The takeaway is that he is dead. He was dead. Zenobia was a widow before she was 30. (gasps) Tragic. 
First on the agenda, make sure no one is coming to assassinate her or her son, Vabalathus, next, which is pretty crucial. Though some have suggested that she had a hand in the assassination of her husband. Yes. Yes. Though some have suggested... <laughs> didn't make that clear. Though some have suggested that she had a hand in a possible assassination of her husband, that's probably unlikely, because as far as we can tell, she didn't have a motive, unless he was just a big dick. So her husband had been murdered. She's not sure by who or why. Time to go to the troops that she'd gained the respect of during Odinathus' Persian campaign to get their support. She needed an immediate display of power in order to warn off any potential attempts on her life. Also, if she hadn't taken decisive control, there would have been a power vacuum and most likely some form of civil war. Again, ain't nobody got time for that. Odinathus' army supported Zenobia's claim to rule, so step one was accomplished. But now she needed to find a way to hold on to that power, so that's step two. In the wake of Odinathus' death, Zenobia needed to secure the support of Roman governors and the rulers of the kingdoms around Palmyra. Then she needed to secure the support of the Roman Emperor. Easy peasy. So easy. When her husband died, their son was ten years old. But he was the one with the all-important Y chromosome, essential for ruling. Truly. So Zenobia installed her son as ruler and assigned herself as his regent. That's like a woman's tradition. Like, going back, like my son is great at being emperor, I'm just going to stand behind him the whole time. My son, who can't speak in three-syllable words, is definitely the king. Yes. So she consciously adopted the titles given to Odinathus for their son and styled Vabalathus as the king of kings. Here's some foreshadowing for you. Some historians have claimed that Zenobia already had plans to conquer Rome at this point and gave her son these titles as part of a long game plan for ruling the empire. But as Odinathus himself shows, the titles weren't unusual for rulers of Palmyra, so... Zenobia did not assume any special titles for herself, calling herself queen, which she was, and positioning herself as of senatorial rank, which she also was, thanks to Odinathus' appointment as a senator. Crucially, Zenobia used titles common to the eastern provinces, cementing the support of the army and her eastern neighbours to her rule. She was aware of the need to build this relationship with the east, and so she allowed eastern nobles to become government officials in Palmyra, and she championed religious tolerance, welcoming Christians and Jewish people alike, which was actually a Roman tactic. Zenobia followed in her husband's footsteps and controlled Syria, Mesopotamia, and Asia Minor. She was not in charge of the day-to-day -day running of the areas under her control, but was able to order the governors to defend the Eastern Empire. Soon after Zenobia took charge, the Roman Emperor... Ooh, Roman Emperor... Soon after Zenobia took charge, the Roman Emperor Galenius was replaced by a new emperor, Claudius, meaning she had to make sure she had his favour to keep ruling. One source suggests that Claudius allowed Zenobia to continue as Queen of Palmyra so that she could defend the eastern border while he focused his forces elsewhere. Whether she was asked slash ordered to by the emperor or not, Zenobia took on the task of securing the lands under her control from the Persians or other attacks, fortifying buildings and settlements, and perhaps stationing troops along the borders. Her enemies claimed later that Zenobia had allied with the Persians, but fortifying the border makes that claim unlikely. More likely, she fought the Persians over the borders of Palmyra. Doesn't make sense. She's not putting up a fence against the Persians and then being like, but we're best friends. Oh no, don't come over the wall. Oh no, I left the gate open. <laughs> I left the key in the lock just <laughs> for you. Her program of strengthening the borders would have helped her build support among the people under her rule proving to them that she would continue to protect them like Odinathus had done. Zenobia would have known she needed to prove without a doubt her power, um, but also like her commitment to her people as opposed to her commitment to Rome. And, but this was dangerous and perhaps explains why she chose to paint herself as a regent to her son rather than queen in her own right. 
So there had been other women who had ruled as queen outright, but there were also plenty of examples of Rome fearing powerful women. Cleopatra. Cleopatra. So it was safer for her to keep a lower profile, enforce Roman customs, and avoid anything that could seem threatening to Roman rule. She wasn't necessarily great at that, though, because she has been characterised as a warrior queen, and she definitely assumed military command. She probably didn't ride into battle hair flowing in the wind, like some would like us to believe, though she probably did go with the army to the front. But what happens if she gets killed? Little baby son is now in danger. I mean, it's romantic for leaders to charge up with their troops, but it's also a bad idea. Power vacuums after a leader's sudden death on the battlefield rarely end well. This is one of my problems with the early part of Wonder Woman. Instead, Zenobia made all the decisions, political and military, and entrusted her generals to carry out her commands. How very John Monash. Of course. Yes. 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 We got there. Mm. Off the battlefield, Zenobia gathered round her philosophers and intellectuals. Of course, this meant that historians have decided that it was these scholars who were the power behind the throne, leading Zenobia and encouraging her ambition. Because you know what? Vaginas mean you can't think for yourself. Palmyra did not have a strong intellectual tradition, but by gathering these thinkers around her, Zenobia attempted to start building one. Though she didn't speak Latin well, she made sure her son did so that he could navigate Roman politics when he was king. She also focused on her own education, learning Greek history and philosophy to add to her extensive knowledge of the East and her fluent Egyptian. But there is war! Oh, you want to talk about the war in a podcast on war? You're fussy. I am fussy. So, for the next three years after her husband's death, Zenobia focused on retaining control over her own territory, defending the eastern border against Persian attack and building fortifications. To help with this, she probably also recruited new soldiers from local tribes to strengthen the Palmarine army. Once she'd strengthened her eastern border, she could turn her attention to other matters. So in 270, she began looking outside her territory and began to take control of Arabia and Egypt. Arabia, by the way, it was not the whole Arabian Peninsula as we know it, nor some mythical land with flying carpets, but rather a small province in Rome in between Palmyra and Egypt along the Red Sea and the Nile Delta. Historians are not 100% sure why Zenobia decided to expand her territory at this point. Some suggest she was really ambitious, others that she was opportunistic, while others that it was economic need. A different interpretation, again, is that Zenobia felt threatened by the Roman Emperor Claudius. And perhaps she decided to expand her influence so she could ensure the safety and security of her people, possibly planning for a confrontation with Rome or with other enemies that she likely would have had to face without the help of Rome. Defence and economy go hand in hand here. By taking over Egypt, Zenobia gained access to the wealth and abundant food of the Nile Delta, as well as the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. In turn, this would have helped pay defence costs. Maintaining fortifications and providing for soldiers was expensive, and though Rome expected Palmyra to defend the eastern border, it's unlikely that the emperors gave Palmyra any money to ensure this, forcing the province to foot the bill for defence out of their own pockets. With trade struggling and a lack of resources, Zenobia needed a way to pay for Palmyra's defence. She couldn't break off from Rome and ally with Persia because Rome would not stand a former province to ally with their enemy. And so Zenobia had to try to maintain her autonomy while still appeasing Rome. That's a tricky line to walk. It is a very tricky line to mm. walk. Yet, if Zenobia let Palmyra's economy struggle, she would weaken her borders and leave her people vulnerable. Thus, the appeal of the wealth in Egypt was too good an offer to pass up. So while Zenobia was expanding into Arabia and Egypt, Rome was in the middle of war, shocker, and chaos <laughs> with the Gothic Wars, the death of the Emperor Claudius, and the resulting power struggle until Aurelian became emperor. There's a reason I didn't put in the first emperors earlier on in the script, because there's there just too, too many. many. Yeah. There was like five emperors in one year at one point. There was, it's yeah. like living in Australia a few years ago. But um, 
Alright, continue. There was also some plague going on too, so that was fun. Suffice to say, with everything happening, Rome was not so focused on what Zenobia was doing way over in the east. In the spring of 270, Zenobia launched an attack on a federation of Arab tribes known as the Tunuk when she marched into Arabia. There was a short battle, which the Palmyrians won quickly, and Zenobia took control. In Egypt, her seizure of control was not quite so swift. It took at least two battles for the Palmyrians to fully grasp command of Egypt, but by the beginning of 271, Zenobia's rule of Egypt was secured. Under Zenobia, things in Egypt continued pretty much as they had before, but she did try to bring together the different groups of people living in Alexandria. They somewhat blended Greco-Roman, Hellenistic and Persian cultures with the Aramaic culture of the Palmyra. By 271, Zenobia had brought most of the East under her control, except Asia Minor. Asia Minor. With these expansions, she ruled over a far greater territory than her husband had. Get wrecked, Odinathus. <laughs> it's unclear if Zenobia was talking to the Roman Emperor Aurelian at this point, and whether he was aware of her expansion. He did have a lot going on at the time, so maybe he just didn't have time to deal with it, or maybe he was waiting to see what happened. Zenobia certainly tried to stay on his good side, at least as much as she could while taking his land by presenting her son, who she's setting up as the ruler, as a subordinate to the emperor. So she probably hoped this would mean she could keep her new territory and stay friendly with Rome. So she's sort of like, I'm going to take your land, and my son's going to be king, but he's still under your control. And did I mention how well he speaks Latin? (laughs) He speaks Latin so good, bro. He speaks it so good. I speak the best Latin. All right. Aurelian did not agree. Shocking. Between 271 and 272, he prepared to march his armies to Palmyra. So Zenobia had to make a decision. She could hand back the territories she had taken and try to go back to ruling Palmyra as Odonathus had done. Or she could fight to try and retain her new power. But Aurelian might not agree after everything she'd done already, and also there were still the economic factors that might have prompted her to expand in the first place. In spring 272, Zenobia declared both herself and her son imperial rulers. She presented herself as a Roman empress, going by the name Septima Zenoba Augusta, and minted coins with both herself and Babalathus as Roman emperors. They did. fucking loved coins. Bloody loved coins. Love a good coin. On milestones, which were literal markers along the road, marking the miles, Zenobia used imperial titles for herself and Babalathus as well, making it clear to anyone travelling through her territory who was in charge. When things happened is a bit vague at this point, even vaguer than for a lot of ancient history, so it's unclear who started hostilities. It is possible that Zenobia initiated everything by starting to usurp Aurelian, but that seems unlikely. She had a far better chance at succeeding if she'd made her move in the power vacuum after Claudius' death, and she was certainly intelligent enough to know that. It is possible that Aurelian suspected Zenobia was going to declare herself empress and decided to march to stop her. Or Zenobia might have decided to take up imperial titles after Aurelian had already begun marching on the east. As far as historians can tell, however, it wasn't Zenobia's intention to revolt or set herself up as a ruler of a state separate from Rome. The most likely scenario, therefore, is that she preempted Aurelian and adopted the titles knowing she needed to secure her command of the East if she was to defeat a Roman invasion. If she was going to win, she needed to show herself as a powerful figure, someone who was not subordinate to Rome. So, yeah, she's going all in. To war! To war! Full transparency here. There's no surviving accounts of the war between Zenobia and Aurelian from the actual time. So we have to rely on accounts from Greek and Latin writers much later, who were pretty damn biased against Zenobia. She was so mean, you guys. She was 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 so mean. She has two Fendi purses and a silver Lexus, so... She stuck her tongue out at the Roman Empire. It was really rude. 
So what we present here is one likely narrative of what happened, but there are other interpretations of the sources which also have credibility. So feel free to go and do that research yourself, because I'm not. Huh. Right. <laughs> so, from the beginning, Aurelian needed to take back Egypt, which would ensure he had access to the resources of the Nile and also had a route into Syria from the south. So it's likely he split his forces so that he took some to attack the Palmyrians from the north and sent others to attack Egypt back and come up to Palmyra from the south. And I'm doing hand gestures here to explain it, which you can't see. They're very good. Thank you. By June 272, Egypt was back in Aurelian's control. It's probable that Zenobia realised that defending Palmyra and territories close to it was the most important thing. As if Palmyra was lost, it really didn't matter if she held on to Egypt. Um, so it wouldn't make sense to fight on two different fronts if she could help it, so she brought her forces back home. Protect the base. Protect the base. Protect the base. Classic capture the flag tactics. Oh, I miss capture the flag. I'm I so good at it. Alright. Around April 272, Aurelian and his troops... Let's pretend it's April 25th, 272. It is not Anzac Day. Fuck off. Okay. Aurelian and his troops marched through Asia Minor towards Palmyra with little resistance. Instead, he and his forces were able to gain the support of local populations, meaning he did not have to worry about a threat from behind. It also meant that by the time his forces reached the Palmyrian army, they were relatively well-rested and in high numbers. I mean, the Romans have been doing this for a really long time. They know what they're doing. Zenobia and her general Zabdus had fewer troops than the Romans, so needed to control where the inevitable battle took place so they could play to their advantages. They chose a plain near Antioch, where they could use their heavy cavalry to their advantage. Very rudely, Aurelian either anticipated this move or was informed where the Palmarines were, and so he went around Antioch to approach not from the northwest as Zabdus expected, but from the east, blocking off the Palmarine route to Palmyra if they decided to retreat. So, luckily, Zabdus realised the Romans' change of route in time to move the Palmarines to a new position. The Palmarines thought they had the advantage, especially when the Roman forces seemed to retreat, so the Palmarines attacked. But it was a tactic by Aurelian, and the Palmarines exhausted themselves pursuing the Romans, and could not defend themselves when the Romans turned and then attacked near the town of Imae. Zabdus withdrew the Palmarines, and Zenobia, who was probably not in battle itself but at Antioch, decided to retreat rather than waste men and resources trying to defend Antioch against Roman siege. More. Also, the people of Antioch were not convinced of their loyalty to Zenobia, and it wouldn't have taken much to turn on the Palmarines. To leave unencumbered, Zenobia presented the battle as a victory to the local citizens, and even announced that Zabdus had captured Aurelian so that they could leave in the middle of celebrations. This was so successful that Aurelian didn't even realise till the next day that they were no longer in the city. It's just such a great tactic. It's like, guys, we definitely won. We're just leaving because we won. Like, right? I love it. You seem confused. No, I understand now. Sorry. Yeah. Yep. She was Didn't like, hey guys, we won, let's celebrate. And then while everyone's celebrating, no, I was she's like, like sneaking out the I was door. like, that's not the name of the town. The town is called Antioch. <laughs> really? I, it is the Empire. Yeah, I know. I was like, yeah. <laughs> All right, continue. This loss was a setback, but Zenobia didn't think it meant defeat. Zenobia and the Palmarines regrouped at Amisa. Though she had less troops overall, her cavalry outnumbered Aurelian's cavalry. And she had the added bonus that this was personal for her troops. They were fighting to protect their home, which... You know, as every movie you've ever seen shows, always gives you an advantage. Like at the Battle of Imae, Zabdus again assembled Palmarian troops on a plain near the city. Aurelian tried to repeat his tactic that was so successful last time, but this time the Romans actually did flee uh, in the face of the Palmarian cavalry attack, and the Romans appeared to be losing. But it wasn't over yet. The Palmarian line began to crumble, and the Roman soldiers took advantage of this, turning on the offensive and forcing Zenobia's troops to flee, 
trampling many of their own forces in the chaos. Zenobia and the Palmarines were forced to flee to Palmyra, and this time it was not so orderly. She left her treasury behind, had few troops left, and the enemy was now close to the city. Now she had to rely on the tribes living around Palmyra to help her defeat the Romans. So Aurelian and the Romans arrived at Palmyra to find it was not completely walled like most cities were at the time. They left the back gate open. So though some accounts suggest the Romans laid siege to the city, it's more likely they used some sort of blockage, perhaps preventing allies from reaching Zenobia. At this point, there were probably negotiations between Zenobia and Aurelian. Without access to food or supplies and cut off from any allies, Zenobia had few choices. She could try to hang on, but then she risked her own soldiers turning on her out of hunger or resentment. She could agree to Aurelian's terms and surrender, but Aurelian might not stay true to his word to spare her and Palmyra. She could attempt to engage the Romans in battle one more time, but her forces were not only greatly reduced, they might not have even listened to her. Or she could escape. She went with option D, escape. Zenobia escaped Palmyra in the night and fled to Persia, but she was caught by Aurelian's cavalry. So Zenobia and Vabalathus were now prisoners of Aurelian, and her forces crumbled. Aurelian was now back in charge of Zenobia's territories. They were taken to Amisa for trial. Aurelian left a force at Palmyra and probably disbanded the Palmyrene army. Likely, as a result, trade at Palmyra decreased significantly. Now, we don't know for certain what happened to Zenobia after her capture. Some sources suggest she died on the way to, to Rome from Amisa, either by disease or suicide. Another possibility is that Zenobia was forced to stand on a dais in chains for three days in Antioch. After this, Aurelian probably spared her life, at the very least to avoid turning Zenobia into a martyr for people to rally around. He probably set her up in a villa in what would become Italy, with or without her son. Which, I mean, if you lose a war, a villa in Italy is not a bad place to Italy up. didn't exist till 1860. That's lovely. That's not the period we're talking about. I know. Italy is a state of mind. Yes, the state of mind of Italy, that's what she was saying. Yeah, yeah. She was in a villa that was, you know... So, as I think we've shown, Zenobia was a hard figure to pin down. So it's hard to get a sense of who she was, let alone a sense of her legacy. Because legacy? We know, legacy. What is a legacy? Don't you fucking stop. Okay. I'll kick you out of my okay. house. Because we know so little for certain about her, it's been easy for people to turn her story into one that suits their own agendas. She's been credited as a heroic freedom fighter, championing the oppressed. In Syria, Zenobia is a national hero. Uh, a symbol to rally around for Syrian nationalists. But ISIS has also apparently <coughs> claimed Zenobia as a hero. Um, and this could actually be one of the reasons that ISIS seized modern-day Palmyra in 2015. What a bunch of fucking losers! Alright, Zenobia came back into Western memory around the 17th century when Palmyra was rediscovered by archaeologists, but hopefully not blown up. Unsurprisingly, considering how figures like Cleopatra are portrayed, Zenobia has been mythologised by generations as some exotic, romantic beauty. One 18th century historian, Edward Gibbon, describes Zenobia as the most lovely as well as the most heroic of her sex. The order of these two pra praises are unsurprising. He also wrote that, quote, she claimed her descent from the Macedonian kings of Egypt, equaled in beauty her ancestor Cleopatra, and far surpassed that princess in chastity and valour. So I'm so glad her chastity was more important than any of her actions. It is 100% more important. Definitely. At the end of the 18th century, Zenobia was mythologised by writers and artists as part of a broader wave of Orientalism, and her name became popular amongst the fashionable circles. Fun fact, I'm currently reading the Guernsey, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, and there's a parrot called Zenobia in it. 
Okay. Yeah. I can't read. So that's fair. As well as the inspiration for pirate names, Zenobia has been a popular subject in sculpture, painting, poetry, plays, opera, and music. Kind of like, like not just Boudicca and like Cleopatra and that, but like also like, but also like um the Valkyries. Yeah, I think society is fascinated by women with like lot like long hair in a chariot waving a sword directing men and then losing and then like but like you know the orchestral music going on in the background yeah like but they, they lose that's they the do. thing Boudicca loss Zenobia loses Cleopatra kills yeah, herself you know like I think asp to the breast isn't Titty winning snake. Chitty snakes um I think that thing is because they never have the chance to be bad rulers mm. for a long time Whereas if you look at someone like Mary the First, this is like completely jumping ahead, like a really long time. Bloody Mary. She only ruled for like seven or eight years. And I think she did kill a fair few people, but like not as many as her dad. Yes. And it's like, and he ruled for longer. So it, like, it seems less intense, but like yeah. if they'd had the chance to be bad queens for a long time, we might remember them very differently. We might, like we have no idea. We can't know whether she would have been a good queen. And they've and never had the chance to be a bad one. <laughs> not good or bad. Like, yeah. Yeah. And don't go up against Rome, like, final advice. Don't go up against Rome unless you're a goth, basically. Don't try and take on the Roman Empire. We are going to keep the bats off. That's another horrible history's reference. It just, oh, it doesn't end well for anybody. It doesn't end well for anybody. Even the Romans in the end. <laughs> don't go up against Rome if you're Roman. Because then you're Roman and you're Roman and you're Roman. I am actually the new emperor of Rome, so congratulate me on that. Thank you. And I'm my, not going to congratulate you. And my dog will be a senator. I'm going to depose you. It's oh, fine. It's fine. I, I enjoy, I enjoy this story. Like, it's just... It's the fun epic, I think. Anyway, I think we can leave it there. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave right. it. Thanks. This, Thanks for listening. This has been Women of War. I have been Nicola. I've been Hannah. Please subscribe. We have a Twitter. We have a website now, don't we? We have a website we now. Have a website. Yes, go check out the website, womenofwarpod.com. Find us on all the socials, yeah. at Women of War Pod. We're very consistent. We have the Facebook and we have the Instagram. We have the Twitter. We do. Like us. Share subscribe, us. Comment. Review us. Even if you hate us. Send nudes. Okay, cool. Don't send nudes to anybody. It's fine. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Bye.